baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot's tenure as mayor of Chicago is in its final days. She will turn over the gavel to successor Brandon Johnson on Monday, May 15th. She's had something of a stormy run, but without question, she's done a lot of good along the way. This weekend, we'll hear her talk about the ups and the downs. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. After a tight and somewhat bitter race earlier this year, it was certainly considered a possibility that Mayor Lightfoot would not emerge from the February election with a runoff slot, but it wasn't expected by very many. Nevertheless, it's what happened. She placed third and out of the running. Since then and throughout the runoff, the mayor hasn't spoken at length to local reporters about the race and losing her bid for re-election. That is, until now. This past week, Lori Lightfoot agreed to separate long-form interviews with one Chicago-based print reporter, one local television reporter, and me. We talked in the mayor's office, the ceremonial one she uses for meetings. We spoke last Monday with the only restriction that interviews could not air before now. That means you won't hear any reaction to state's attorney Kim Fox deciding not to run for re-election. The announcement hadn't happened yet. I did start the interview asking about the Illinois Labor Relations Board ruling overturning the administration's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for City of Chicago employees. The city has been ordered to rehire workers that were terminated for refusing to get the vaccine. I asked if this was an issue she was going to leave for the new mayor to handle. Well, we don't believe that that um, decision was well-grounded in fact or law. And so we will, we're weighing all of our options, but I would expect us to appeal that. Are you in contact with the new administration, the incoming administration, uh, about this kind of thing? Because it's, it's going to overlap, isn't it? Well, we have, um, I have personally been in contact with uh, uh, the mayor-elect on several occasions. Um, I've made the offer to, to him that my door is open, not just through uh, May 15th, but thereafter. Um, our staffs are talking on a regular basis, and obviously we're going through the process of the transition itself, but they're free to ask us um, any issue um, that they want, and we have flagged for them um, any urgent or emerging issues that they need to be up to speed on. Okay. Uh, do you know how many employees are affected by that decision? I don't have those numbers um, offhand, but we can. Uh, and again, I don't expect that this decision will stand. Okay. Um, on another issue, you were in Washington uh, for the uh, meeting with the uh, other African-American mayors and criticized the Democrats for failing to do enough on crime. And, uh, and as before, as you have here, uh, talked about judges and prosecutors uh, uh, making it too easy for people accused of violent crimes to get, get out. Um, the state's attorney has long said that in many cases it's that the police aren't making cases that are strong enough uh, to really hold them. Uh, what needs to be done more at this level uh, that can be done at this level? 
Well, look, I, I would not um, accept the characterization that I criticize Democrats. What I said was that as Democrats, we need to be comfortable talking about all aspects of the public safety challenge. It, this is very complicated. It has many different layers to it. Um, but what seems to happen often is we talk from the voice of um, uh, <clears throat> po uh, police accountability and criminal justice reform, but we don't talk enough from the perspective of the victims and witnesses who are out there suffering from violent crime, and in many instances, like in a city like Chicago, um, for decades and decades, we have to have their voices at the table as well. And if we don't do that, and if we're not bold um, in saying that violent, dangerous, habitual offenders need to be off the street because they're wreaking havoc in our communities, if we don't add that into the conversation along with investments and alternatives and police reform, if that's not part of it, we are missing out on an opportunity not only to advocate on behalf of victims and witnesses, but to um, forge policies that will ultimately keep our cities safe and bring lasting peace. But this is an issue that has polarized people. It's become more of a political issue perhaps than it should. But how do you get the people who want that discussion that you're talking about into the same room as people who are saying it's all about accountability? Well, we are in those rooms, but we've also got to articulate these issues and not be timid or afraid or silent um, when we're having those conversations. Public safety is an ecosystem. There's all different components of it. But the victims and the witnesses have a right to be heard. And you can't do one without the other. If you talk about police reform, if you talk about criminal justice reform, and you leave out the critical voice of victims and witnesses, you will not accomplish what needs to get done. And so what I'm saying is not criticism of anybody, but saying that we have to make sure that those voices are heard in the discussions, in the rooms where these uh, matters um, are being litigated, so to speak. We've got to add this critical piece of it um, as a component part. And I've been very outspoken about this issue. It can't just be one or the other. We cannot let violent, dangerous, habitual offenders um, not have accountability because when we don't hold them accountable, including pre-trial, we make our communities less safe. Is your voice being heard <clears throat> on this? I mean, are you seeing any movement um, within the uh, what is often called the progressive community that people are willing to consider that side? Well. I don't wait for people to give me permission to speak, as you well know. And so I've been saying this for four years. I'll continue to say it um, as long as I think that the issue um, needs to continue to have a push. I see this issue from literally every conceivable side. <clears throat> I'm the sister of a returning resident. I'm a former prosecutor. I'm a former criminal defense attorney. I'm a mayor. I'm a police reform and accountability expert. I know that these issues are complicated, multi-layered, but we cannot leave the victims out. I'm a person who um, was acquainted with this community before I became mayor, and as mayor, <clears throat> I've had to make way too many calls to families who've been devastated by gun violence. Not, 
way too many because they're hard calls to make, way too many because we need to continue to make, make progress. But I also know that the moms and dads <clears throat> and grandparents who have suffered feel like they are being ignored and not hurt. And I feel a certain responsibility, a special responsibility, to be an advocate for them. Um, another police issue that is uh, upon us <clears throat> is uh, who is going to lead the police department. And while that is not your decision to make, um, you are left with a, a situation where going into the summer months, we've not only uh, had to say goodbye to the police superintendent, but now also the uh, number two police official who was the interim. Um, how concerned are you for the new administration and for the city that the leadership has, of the police department has taken such a hit before we go into the critical uh, summer season when we were expecting and, and, and maybe even fearful of you know, more problems than we've already seen. It was the first issue that I raised with the mayor elect, sitting in a chair that you're sitting in, and raised this issue as um, a urgent issue, not only in the selection of a police superintendent, but in making sure that he fully understood and appreciated the challenges that happen when there's instability in leadership at the police department. We are going into a critical time period. I have been urging um, the senior leadership of the police department every single week not to take their foot off the gas, making sure that they hold people accountable, that we continue to see the gains um, that started to come and, and eventually did come over the course of last year and have continued uh, into this year. But instability um, at the top of the police department is not a good thing, not only for the department and leadership, um, but it's not a good thing for our city. And at this point, um, I think the mayor-elect um, is going to have to choose a new interim before um, he gets the final names uh, provided to him later this summer or early in the fall. But um, it's also important that he take some steps in the direction um, of the police department because the, he now will own responsibility for the day-to-day -day public safety of residents in the city, and he's got to work together with the police department. Absolutely, he's got to hold them accountable, but he cannot afford to lose the department um, and the worker and the officers over the course of this summer. Um, I hope we continue to see uh, the gains that we've experienced for the last year plus, um, but it's all about daily accountability. Can a, a new person who is not familiar with the department uh, in an, on an intim, intimate basis, as you have been, uh, really make a solid choice that will say stability to the rank and file, will say, say stability to the top brass. Well, he's going to have to. He's the mayor. He's going to be the mayor um, starting May 15th. And that decision is absolutely going to be his. I think the police superintendent choice is one of the most important decisions that any mayor has to make. I think that relationship um, with the superintendent of police is critically important. Um, that's what comes with the job. Yeah. And, and I'm confident he will educate himself to be able to make that critical decision. Yeah, and the decision for, on the superintendent is one that, by definition, is going to take a while. Um, the, and, I, and I have talked with the uh, members and, and some of the leaders of the uh, 
civilian commission, the community commission, uh, about this, and they are saying, we can't be rushed on this. We have to <clears throat> go by our deadlines because if we do anything that makes it look like a rush job, we're going to lose the confidence, what little confidence people should have in us. So they're not going to do it any faster than they're mandated to do it. Um, so doesn't that leave the city in kind of a precarious position? Look, <clears throat> they need to do their job. And they need to do their job by the deadline that's set by, <clears throat> by ordinance, not a deadline past that that they choose. Not past, <clears throat> but they're saying they're going to do it by the deadlines well, that no are set in the law. Them. There's no track record of them hitting um, mandatory deadlines. And I hope this is one where they absolutely hit the mandatory deadline, which is July 14th. Anything less than that, um, they, they are responsible. They are responsible for the consequences of what happened. It's unacceptable for them not to move with all deliberate speed. Yes, of course, they need to um, be engaging in the community. I've run three different police searches from different perspectives. And obviously, community input is critically important. But we're heading into summer. They need to get the job done, and they need to get it done in a timely fashion. They cannot blow that deadline. Um, the crime issue, in many ways, proved to be an Achilles heel in the campaign. Um, even if no one was calling you soft on crime, it seems like a, I mean, my perception is that it was kind of a perfect storm of things happening downtown, <coughs> things happening in the neighborhoods, civil unrest, and all the other things that added in. But um, was this, uh, you know, was this almost an impossible situation? No, I don't think it was an impossible situation at all. Um, public safety is the number one priority of any mayor anywhere. No different here. We obviously, in the wake of the pandemic um, and the murder of George Floyd, everywhere across the country we saw this surge um, in violent crime, um, shootings, homicides, uh, carjackings, um, and other issues. Every single mayor that I know, big city, mid-sized city, and even small cities was grappling uh, with this challenge, no different here uh, in Chicago. I think the difference for us is, um, frankly, um, the 24-hour news cycle and the sensationalization of every issue um, didn't help. Um, the fact that we made progress, meaningful progress, um, in um, homicides, shootings, and carjackings over the course of uh, last year, and that most residents of the city don't know it um, because that wasn't something that the media reported. And then when we started to make the progress, um, many in the media, frankly, changed the, the goalpost. But fundamentally, we... My goal always was not to put temporary band-aids on a big challenge and problem like public safety. Decades in the making. This didn't just arise on my watch. Chicago has had a challenge with public safety as long as most people have memory. What I wanted to do was bring lasting peace. Of course we need to continue um, to hold violent, dangerous, and habitual offenders accountable, which is why I pressed so hard on pre-child detention because I think that was absolutely necessary. I'm not apologetic about that. That was what was needed to keep people safe, and it's still needed. But we also have to look at the root causes. We've invested a significant amount of resources uh, all across the spectrum, and particularly focus on the 15 communities um, that have historically led um, 
50% or more of our violence. And we made a lot of progress there. And because of the whole of government, whole of city approach that we took to um, addressing the challenges in those neighborhoods, that absolutely accounts for the um, double-digit percentages, declines, and homicides, and shootings, and carjacking. But like everything <clears throat> that where there's a long-standing um, challenge and problem, you've got to continue to execute a plan with fidelity and be, and, be <clears throat> and be diligent about the work. And that's what we've attempted to do, and that is what that infrastructure is what we are handing off to the next administration. And certainly it's my hope and it's my prayer that they will continue to build on the work that we have done. You can't just arrest your way out of this problem, but you've got to hold violent, dangerous people accountable now, now, now. But you also have to simultaneously look at <clears throat> the root causes and make those necessary investments in communities, whether it's um, the investments that we've made with young people, whether the investments that we've made to shore up um, health and well-being, the investments that we've made uh, to build wealth in communities that need it most, the economic development, Invest Southwest, all of those things build healthy, safe, vibrant communities and are part of our public safety plan. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore. You're listening to a conversation with outgoing Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and we're talking about the issue on which the city's election turned, public safety, or as most people call it, crime. The interview was recorded early last week and embargoed for airing until now. Is perception the hardest thing to overcome? And, and I will tell you, I know that every time the statistics have shown progress. We have reported it, and I, I know we're reporting it because I get the emails from people <laughs> who say, oh no, we don't believe it. Uh, and frankly, from some people who say, I'm, I'm hearing gunshots in my neighborhood every night, so I don't believe you. Um, is that, Look, how do you get over that kind of perception? Perception can become reality, but I think we all have to work together to tell the truth and the facts. And I know people are skeptical, particularly they're skeptical about anything that comes out of government these days, but we can't ignore the facts. There are no alternative set of facts when it comes to public safety, but perception is real. And so people everywhere, um, those neighborhoods that have been historically plagued by violence, those neighborhoods who are feeling the touch of violence maybe for the first time in a long time, everybody deserves to be safe. But we've all got to work together and recognize that we all have responsibilities here. We cannot continue down a path where we neglect neighborhoods and starve them of resources and think that young black and brown boys growing up in those neighborhoods are not going to um, feel um, less than, feel like they have no hope, feel like their destiny is preordained when we ignore them. And that has an effect on people on the north side. That has an effect on people everywhere. We have to be one city on this issue of public safety. We have to be united together and not turn the other way because it may not be affecting me in this moment. That is what I think one of the most valuable lessons coming out of the last four years. We have to be united together. We did that through COVID. 
We've got to continue to do that through public safety, not point the finger of blame, but roll up our sleeves and say, how can I help? Um, I do want to go back to the development on the south and west side. In Best Southwest, I don't, with few exceptions, I, I would say people acknowledge that that is an initiative that has made a difference, has been a difference in the way the city has done things. Um, do you see that as your last, most lasting legacy? I think, look, the legacy is going to be determined by the people whose lives were directly affected. They're not going to be, the legacy is not going to be written by the media, by the critics, by the pundits. It's going to be written in the lives of the people who have benefited from the work that we've done. I came in the door knowing that I needed to do two critical things. Number one is I needed to completely disrupt the status quo that had failed so many residents. I got a mandate, 75% of the voters said, we want something that is different. We want, we want to shed ourselves of the past and the status quo, which isn't working for most Chicagoans. And so in the course of sent, signing an executive order that took the first steps toward um, getting rid of automatic prerogative, signing um, the most comprehensive um, ethics um, legislation in the history of the city, um, doing contract reform, making sure that investments were being made on the merits and not somebody who made a political donation or had uh, been a clouded, favored person. I'm very proud of that work because it freed us up to do the right things in neighborhoods on the south and the west side. You can't have one without the other. And yeah, I broke a lot of eggs. And to be blunt, I pissed a lot of people off. But I did it for the right reasons, and I did it on behalf of people who felt like they were locked out of resources and locked out of City Hall because City Hall, in their perception, and the resource allocations were controlled by a small, clouded few that hurt the rest of Chicagoans. So if there's a legacy, I hope it's a legacy of fighting on behalf of ordinary residents in this city to free up our city government to do the right thing in neighborhoods and for people that desperately needed it the most. As you mentioned, you <clears throat> did rub some people the wrong way. Were you surprised at how big an issue your personality became in the campaign and frankly, even during some of the... Uh, oh, the, the media made it an issue way before that. The campaign seized upon the narrative that was created by the media. And look, I'm a black queer woman. I have always known my entire adult life that there is different set of rules and standards by which I'm going to be judged. That is not a surprise. Um, and to, to the, the obsession with, is she nice, is she not nice, following Rich Daly and Rahm Emanuel is frankly laughable. But I'm a firm believer that you've got to play the cards that you're dealt, and that's what I did. I mean, <clears throat> I always thought that Ryan Rahm is probably the best example because he, he cultivated that image, too, was that for him... <clears throat> anger seemed to be a tool in a toolbox and he would take it out when he thought he needed it use it and then put it back in and if you had a discussion with him half an hour later it you know he it was as if it had never happened um and i got a sense sometimes that things stay with you longer is that 
a correct perception? Are you now my psychoanalyst? No, no, and I'm not trying to be. That's why I'm asking the question. (laughs) Well, look, it's neither here nor there. What I did is I fought for what I thought was right. And I continue to fight for what I think is right. I continue to fight for the values that I have as a human being, but also values that I ran on and values of making sure that ordinary residents in this city got a fair shake from City Hall. And there are a lot of people who didn't like that. There are a lot of people who believed that it was just campaign talk and that it wasn't something real. And I had to remind people on a regular basis, no, it is real that I am going to do the right thing, that I'm going to do the right thing for the right reason. I'm not going to just do the political thing. And people didn't like that, but that's too bad because my North Star are my North Star. My values are my values. I leave office with my head held high, knowing that every single day I made a lot of tough but necessary decisions um, in some of the most difficult, challenging circumstances that any mayor in the history of the city has faced. And I feel very comfortable with the way in which we governed. Can I ask what you're going to do next? You can ask, but... Going back to the law firm, maybe? Look, when when it's appropriate for me uh, to talk about what I'm going to be doing next, I will absolutely talk about it. But I don't think it's appropriate for me before I leave to be talking about what my, my my future is. There's still work to be done. I've got three weeks left as we sit here and record this. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And <clears throat> when it's appropriate on the other side, I will share with the public what I intend to be doing. Okay. One other person <clears throat> whose future we have uh, been talking about and wondering about has been your partner during COVID, uh, Dr. Arwady. Um, we know she has said she wanted to stay. She's publicly said she wanted mm-hmm. to uh, continue in the <clears throat> job. Um, what is your hope for her? Well, look, in my view, um, Dr. Allison Arwady is a hero, the likes of which we haven't seen in a city in a really long time. And the reason I say that she's a hero is because of the courageous way in which she fought through a lot of noise nationally and, and then a growing chorus here locally to make sure that she gave me the best possible advice to save people's lives <clears throat> during what I hope is a once-in-a-lifetime um, global pandemic. Not only that, um, Allison, to me, is a hero because of the way in which she has elevated um, the needs of public health to front and center discussion. She's a national expert. She's very re- well regarded on a national level. And look, to just be put a finer point on it, There are people that are walking in Chicago today who would not have been alive but for the work of Allison Arwady and our colleagues at the Department of Public Health. And I'm also proud of the work that we've done around mental health. We went from, at the height of the clinics, um, prior to my my time in office, serving about 3,600 people a year. Last year, we served over 72,000 people citywide. And for the first time, serving children and adolescents with free, culturally competent mental health services <clears throat> in all of our 77 neighborhoods. That is an astounding accomplishment. She has a body of work in four years' time that public health commissioners um, maybe have over decades of work. She's a hero, and she deserves to be treated like one. 
Mayor, I want to uh, thank, <laughs> thank you very much for this conversation and for all of our conversations. So uh, very much appreciated. Thank well, you. Craig, it's always a pleasure um, to join you. Your, your questions are always very thoughtful. Um, I've appreciated very much uh, the way in which <clears throat> we have interacted, and I wish you um, the very best. Well, and the same to you. Thank um, you. That was Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who will leave office on Monday, May 15th, as Brandon Johnson is sworn in. This interview was recorded at the beginning of last week. I would like to thank Mayor Lightfoot and her staff for making this conversation possible. To our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. There's a link on the homepage. You can also find our podcasts on odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 105.9 WBBM. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.